Tom, I lived in Japan for a little while. And one of the things that I came to love about Japan was the toilets there. <laughs> yeah, these amazing toilets. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been to Japan? Have you ever tried one of these toilets? I have been a few times, and I have I have seen these toilets, and I've always thought they were a bit weird. <laughs> okay, they're, they're not weird. They're amazing. And, and I'll tell you why. For one thing, they have heated seats. If, if you've ever, in winter, sat on a cold toilet seat, you know what I'm talking about. It's a, it's a nightmare. These have heated seats. So you sit down and, ah, oh, oh, delightful. But more than that... They shoot a stream of warm water at your nether regions, and it like oscillates across your nether regions, and it cleans them off. And to me, it's a far superior technology. Yeah, well, when I'm in Japan and I see all these weird buttons that can kind of shoot things in various places and make noises, and I mean, God knows, I just don't want to push the wrong button. <laughs> Things could go horribly awry, I suppose. No, but not really. I mean, the worst that can happen is some nice warm water hits, you know, some part of your body where you weren't expecting it. What's so bad about that? But the bottom line is you get cleaner. To me, the this bottom is, line. <laughs> indeed, well, you said it. But but the important thing here is this is a superior technology. This is a better way to clean your butt. That seems obvious to me that it's better. You're more likely in Japan to have one of these toilets than you are to have a dishwasher, than you are to have a microwave. But here in the West. That is just not the case. Almost nobody I know has a Japanese toilet. When I go to a fancy hotel in America, it's probably not going to have one of these bidet-style toilets. We just haven't made the leap here to adapt what I think is, a, is, is the better toilet. Why not? Toto is the big toilet brand in Japan. It's the, it's the biggest one. And they've, had, they've been trying in the U.S. to make these catch on for a long time, and they've had very little success. In Japan, it's actually not that long ago. It's a relatively recent phenomenon, and the time from invention to adoption in Japan was lightning fast. So this all starts with an ad that first aired on Japanese TV in 1982. In the ad, a young woman smears a gob of blue paint into the palm of her hand. And she says, when your hand gets dirty, you wash it. So she pulls out a dry paper towel and she starts smearing the paint around on her palm with the towel. And she says, well, of course, you would never try to clean your hand with a dry piece of paper like that because it wouldn't get the paint off. And then she says, same thing for your butt. So here's where they cut to the product shot. It's a new kind of toilet from a Japanese company called Toto. It's a bidet-style thing that shoots a jet of warm water at a very specific, very unclean part of your body. So here it cuts to the young woman again, and she spins away from the camera and flips up the back of her dress to show us that she's wearing a pair of clean white undies underneath. And she looks over her shoulder at us, and she says, I want you to also clean your butt. So the ad works, like I said, you know, more popular than dishwashers and microwaves in Japan. Over here, not so much. I mean, it's no coincidence that we still call these Japanese-style toilets. So, Tom, I guess I have two questions coming out of this. The first one is, what can I do to get you on one of these toilets to convince you that it's the way to go? And second, in general, what makes a technology go from seeming a little weird and new and different to being something that you just use every day that becomes like a necessity? And to answer that, I think we need to explore two other technologies. One is one from a couple of years ago. It's called Google Glass. And the other one's from a few centuries ago, and it's called The Fork. From Slate, I'm Seth Stevenson. From The Economist, I'm Tom Standage. Welcome to the secret history of the future.
Tonight when I sit down to dinner, I will use a fork to eat and I'll do it without even really thinking about it. But before we had forks, how did people eat? Well, essentially with their hands. So you'd have food in the middle of the table, you'd have a knife, you'd cut a bit of food off, and you'd either then use your hands or the end of the knife, the sharp end, to lift the food into your mouth. And where do forks come into the equation? Well, forks do exist, and they go back thousands of years, but they come generally in two varieties, very big ones, rather like a sort of barbecue set fork, used for much the same sort of thing, so for lifting bits of meat off the fire, things like that, and then very small forks, and these small ones are used for taking small things like olives out of jars, but you don't actually use the fork to put the food in your mouth, you just use the fork to get the olive out. And what happens if I actually did use the fork at, like, a fancy dinner to eat with? Well, people would think that was very strange. So there's a long history of people being ridiculed or criticised for using forks to actually put things in their mouths. And the earliest and probably the goriest example comes from the year 1004 in Venice, and it concerns a woman called Maria Argyropolina. She was the Greek niece of the Byzantine emperor, Basil II. She was marrying the son of the Doge of Venice... And at the wedding feast, she shows up and she has her servants essentially cut up the food for her and serve it to her on a plate. And then she daintily picks at it and she lifts the individual mouthfuls into her mouth with a fork. And everybody's absolutely scandalised by this. And a few years later, an Italian cardinal recorded what happened. And he's describing this this dinner party and he's shocked because this princess rejected nature. It's the first thing that she was doing. And she showed excessive delicacy. This is Margaret Visser. She's the author of The Rituals of Dinner. But remember, the manners, especially at table, you do not draw attention to yourself. You don't do something unusual at the table. This is rude. It was too much. She, she was too delicate for his taste. And then what happens, a couple of years later, the plague strikes Venice and Maria dies of the plague. And this was widely seen as divine punishment for her decadent ways. So this is not really a particularly auspicious start for the introduction of the fork as an everyday dining utensil. I guess the reason that you you look silly to people is just because it's new, because they haven't really seen it before, right? Yes. Uh, It's just sort of, you know, why would you want to change? We've been managing without these things for all this time. What are you on? And it took them another, what, it's five more centuries before people started even thinking of all of us having a fork and eating with it. So more than 500 years after Maria, the Greek princess, has scandalized everybody by using a fork to eat, uh, there are still people trying to get this idea off the ground. And there must have been lots of people in the intervening period. But we do know, for example, that in the 1570s and 1580s, Henry III of France was quite keen on using forks. This was something he seems to have got from his mother, who was Italian, was a Medici, and the Italians were leading Europe in the adoption of forks. And then Thomas Coriat, and he's an English traveller who goes to Europe in the early 1600s, he also notices that the Italians are very keen on using forks and other countries don't seem to be quite so keen. Well, he, well, he responds by thinking, I must have one of these forks. It's obviously a thing you have. And he took them home to England with him. And this is, we're talking 1611. He tries to get people to use it in, in England and everybody laughs at him. He's even given the, the nickname Fursifer, which means fork bearer, um, but also kind of means an idiot. It's kind of strange to think now that anybody could object to an eating utensil, given that they're so functional. 
They're a lot more precise than fingers. They're a lot more hygienic than just using your hands. But if you think about those Japanese toilets and how they have all these obvious functional advantages over using dry toilet paper, it's clear that something other than functionality is coming into play there. Other things can also cause us to adopt or not adopt a technology. There's another interesting example of this, which is Google Glass. Glass was a heads-up visual display, smart glasses. It was in the news a lot a few years ago. So they could take photos and send text messages and make calls and play music. And Google announced them with a lot of fanfare. Remind me to buy tickets for Monsieur Gano tonight. Upbeat music, happy product launch, but an unexpected thing happened here. Pretty quickly, glass becomes a target of ridicule and even anger. The term glasshole becomes a thing. People were occasionally hounded out of places like bars and coffee shops just for daring to wear glass. And nobody seemed to have much sympathy for those people. The Daily Show, a satirical comedy show in the U.S., did a segment on this in 2014. Here's a woman in the segment describing a traumatic experience she had while wearing glass in San Francisco. I was at a bar and people started verbally accosting me. They started getting physical immediately when I started recording. They ripped them off my face, basically, and they ran outside. It was a a hate crime. The silly thing is is that they're going to be wearing these things probably in a year. You're all going to be wearing these things probably in a year. So that was four years ago. Tom, are you wearing smart glasses right now? Uh Uh-uh. Of course you're not. So Google quietly retrenched with glass in 2015 and pulled it out of the marketplace. And it was kind of a strange chapter in the annals of technology because this was a product that did have undeniable utility. You could read your email, you could send texts, take photos, and that's all while you're keeping your hands free and your eyes up looking at the world around you. But almost nobody bought glass. And the people who did buy glass and tried to use it were immediately ostracized and kind of bullied into giving up the product. And part of the problem was uh, that the glasses had a camera in them. So, right, so you might be filming somebody surreptitiously and nobody liked that. But it was more than just that. I think wearables is the near future, but it's coming a lot slower than you would think. Astro Teller is the man in charge of glass these days. Consumers are going to wear glass, but it hasn't been normalized yet. Society is very fragile around how we look at each other and how we think about technology, especially in this most intimate zone, which is my face looking out or when I'm looking at your face, how I experience you. And that is a transition that's going to take a period of time. And it's not best done, especially with hindsight, by just trying to blast it into society, but by easing it into society. So the idea is that you've got to gently ease certain types of technology into society. And that's whether it's a fork or it's a bidet-style toilet or it's a computer that you wear on your face. Because the intimate things that we do every day like eating food or going to the bathroom or making eye contact with other people while not wearing computers on our faces, those are especially tricky to disrupt because people who are accustomed to eating with their hands or to cleaning themselves with dry toilet paper or to not wearing computers on their faces, they won't easily give those habits up. 
And things that you do every day, they become things you don't even think about. So you want them to be unremarkable. You don't want to disrupt those sort of familiar processes. So I think that means there's a very high bar for getting people to adopt new things in these sort of routine aspects of their lives. Right, that's what makes them routine. But at some point, and that's you know far in the past for the fork, and maybe it's a ways into the future for smart glasses, at some point, something that at first seems bizarre can become normal. So normal, in fact, that its absence is bizarre. So the question is, what makes that happen? How do you turn an oddity into a necessity? How will Google flip glass from being something that we laughed at to something that nobody can imagine living without? Whether people will embrace a new invention quickly or slowly or not at all depends on a delicate balance. It's a balance between how useful the product will be to you and how other people will react when they see you using it. So like a cell phone holster. That keeps your cell phone right there on your hip, which seems very handy, but it might not win you a ton of style points with the cool crowd. And there are lots of other examples of that. Recumbent bicycles or those pants that you can zip the legs off of to make them shorts. This is it. It's all about weighing up the relative utility of something versus the embarrassment. You can think of it like an equation. The more embarrassing it is to be seen to be using an item, the more functional, the more useful that item had better be in order to make the embarrassment worth it. Right. And this is the equation that went wrong for glass. So I asked Astro Teller if during those moments when glass was getting all that ridicule, if you ever looked back at some of these old technologies like the fork, which, you know, at first got their users a lot of grief from other people, despite their having that clear utility. Yes, we looked at those a lot because we were getting pushback from society. And I remember the one that was the most fun for us is somebody pulled a set of quotes that looked for all the world, like there were complaints about Google Glass. And it turned out for four or five of these quotes, these were in major publications in the mid-80s, and they were outrage and disgust at this newfangled invention called the Walkman and how isolating it was for people to have their ears covered and why were they doing this when they were jogging. People just thought that this was the end of civilization as they knew it, and said so in lots of ways that seemed very reminiscent later of how they were describing glass. So it wasn't just the Walkman, but the Walkman happened to be one of the technologies where we saw a lot of parallels between the pushback that glass was was getting, sort of circa 2014. And of course, unlike Google Glass... The Walkman did catch on. And although we don't have actual Walkmans anymore, the idea that you walk around with this device that plays music or podcasts or whatever into your ear and the idea that people routinely wear earphones when they're walking down the street or on the train or whatever, that's just like completely normal. And the same sort of thing, funnily enough, happens with the umbrella. The word umbrella, it's an Italian word that means a little shadow because it's Blocking the sun. Exactly. So it's a paper, what we think of as a paper umbrella. Someone has the brilliant idea, a Frenchman, of um, of painting the paper so that it's waterproof. And the result is the parapluie, which is the French word for umbrella, but it means against the rain. And these are quite slow to catch on. Um, in Do people part, think you look silly at first carrying this umbrella? I mean, it is a bit of a silly object. When you think about it, you're going to open this gigantic thing over your head and hold it over your head. It is a little weird looking. Right, but... 
part of the reason is also that if you carry an umbrella around, it's like wearing a T-shirt that says, I am too poor to afford a carriage. And so some people were reluctant to use umbrellas. And frankly, they would rather get wet because that way it, they would not be advertising their poverty in quite the same way. So it takes a while to catch on. Of course, in Britain, um, it rains a lot. So the utility is much higher than in countries where it doesn't rain quite so much. And so uh, umbrellas become popular in Britain rather earlier than they do in some other countries because obviously the utility is much higher and you're prepared to forego the social cost. Back when Google was trying to make smart glasses into popular consumer tech, they had this problem in mind. And they mainly tried to convince us that glass would be so useful and so functional that it would be worth any embarrassment that might accompany the wearing of a computer on your face. But they also did some things to try to make glass seem more stylish and cool. You know, it's it's hard to tease apart some of the experiments from the outcome of the experiments. So, for example... Wondering how people would respond if you put glass on a runway model is not a crazy experiment. Just Google like Vogue Google Glass image and then go to images. 12-page glass spread. Oh, yeah. Oh, they're they're totally living in the future there, aren't they? It's... Look at them. Oh, God, honestly. The thing is, though, actually, it it kind of works because... People look dumb in fashion spreads anyway. I mean, they're they're wearing stuff no one's ever going to wear. So it's kind of perfect. Oh, look at this. It's the future. It's the future. In the future, we will all have ridiculous haircuts. Oh, yeah. It's kind of cyberpunk. No, it's not. It's a kind of fallout, isn't it? Anyway, it's very nice. For me, what this photo spread proves is that even a absolutely beautiful fashion model can't make wearing glass look cool. But sometimes, like, that strategy is sort of viable, right? So if you if you put a new technology into the hands of the beautiful people or the famous people, the influencers, if you will, then that might conceivably make everyone else think that the technology is cool. And that, that obviously did not really work for Glass in, with this Vogue spread, but it did sort of work for the fork. In order to succeed, the fork has to become more fashionable. And that's one of the things that starts to change in the 1600s. So in 1633, Charles I, the King of England, declares it is decent to use a fork. Why is this? Well, it's probably because his wife was, in fact, the daughter of a Medici, one of the Italian ruling families. So you've got the Medicis as a sort of pan-European group of influencers spreading the Italian fashion of using forks around. And the King of England says he's going to do it. So other people in the ruling classes in England start to use forks as well. Okay, so it's clear that 17th century influencers definitely played a role in making forks hip. But I do think in the end, when you look at this equation of functionality and embarrassment, functionality bears a lot more weight on on whether a technology is going to get adapted because embarrassment can hinder the adoption of the technology, but it's the utility that's going to drive that adoption. It's when you just can't live anymore without it. But sometimes that improved functionality can arrive in a sort of a roundabout way. And that's what happened with the fork. The utility of the fork was all wrapped up with some changes to the knife and to the plate. 
Yes, the story goes that Cardinal Richelieu, who's this very important French statesman in the 1630s, he was so annoyed by one of his dinner guests who used to pick his teeth with his knife that he ordered all the tips of his knives to be ground down. And this fashion caught on. And partly it was a fashion thing, but it was partly also because it meant that you were much less likely to get into a fight that sort of ended in somebody dying at the table. And in fact, in 1669, the King of France makes pointed knives at the dinner table illegal. So you've suddenly got the knife becoming much less useful for picking things up. You can't stick the point into a piece of meat and move it onto your plate. You need something else to do that. So suddenly everybody needs forks. At the same time, the fork itself is actually evolving. So instead of being this two-pronged thing, and the prongs on a fork are called tines, you start to get forks that have three or four, and some of them even have five. But as our food historian Margaret Visser explains, that seems to have been one too many. And we can assume from this that what's in the mind of the people who decided we can't have five is that that five is on the analogy of a hand. Okay, and we're not using a hand anymore. We mustn't think of the fork as a hand. It's not. The other thing that's changing at this point is the tines start to become curved. And this means you can scoop things up with a fork and you can use the pointy bits to spear things on your plate. So the fork has suddenly become much more useful. The final thing that happens around this time is that people start to use hard plates made of metal or china, which you can actually cut things up on using a knife and fork. So this means we then get this trio that we think of as absolutely normal today, where you have like the fork and then you have the plate and then you have the knife and they all sit next to each other on the table. So what's happened over the course of the years sort of 1600 to 1700 is that the utility of a fork has gone way up. The embarrassment of using a fork has come way down. And that means forks finally reach this tipping point and they start to be adopted very, very widely. Like the fork, glass might be taking a kind of roundabout path to success. You might have forgotten about it, but it's still around. It's been biding its time as a product for professionals in technical fields, people who might want to have a checklist or an instruction manual in the corner of their eye where they can easily see it while still having their hands free. Astro Teller thinks that's the way it will start to reappear in our daily lives. Through doctors, nurses, wait staff at restaurants, where you get to experience it, but you understand why they're using it. And over time, because there's a lot of it in society, it gets normalized. And I think that that's a much more uh, quiet and effective way to have society build trust and understanding about a product rather than, you know, trying to sort of market it so loudly that they understand. Tom, I went to the Toto showroom in New York City, which is the front line of their battle to introduce the Japanese-style toilet to America. And they do, they realize it's a battle. Admit it, Tom, a little earlier when I was talking about our nether regions and water oscillating across them, you were a little bit uncomfortable. I get it. That's okay. That's normal. Toto is very used to people feeling like that. So lately, they've been trying to counter some of this embarrassment by using influencers, uh, right? So they they gave some Kardashians their toilets in hopes that the Kardashians would Instagram about it. And boom, there it is. There's a Kylie Jenner post about her Toto toilet and how much she loves it. Hashtag high-tech toilet. So obviously, you know, back then with the fork, it was the Medici's. And these days, you want a Kardashian to um, endorse your new new thing you're trying to get people to use. Exactly. But, but I do think, again, ultimately, it's going to be functionality 
that's going to either make or break the Toto toilet, right? The thing that's going to actually make you buy one is if you try it and realize how wonderful it is. So, and that's what Toto is trying to do in their New York showroom. They have these very prominently placed public bathrooms at the back with uh, up-to-date, brand-new Toto toilets in them. Lenora Campos, who's a Toto spokesperson, gave me a tour. And so this, this is like, this is live fire here. People, yeah. people can come in this. You tell people to come in and take a test drive and exactly. you can go ahead and we use it. That's why it's, why they're here. We want them to, to experience it. Do people come out with like a big grin on their face and say, I'll take it? What happened? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they do. They absolutely do. Yeah. So this is the utility versus embarrassment equation again. So was the showroom thronged with Kardashian fans who were just racing to use these loos? It was not at the time that I was there. (laughs) But what they're hoping is over time, it will be embarrassing not to use one of their toilets, just like it's embarrassing not to use a fork at dinner and to just use your hands to eat. There is, of course, an eating utensil that we have not mentioned at all yet, which is chopsticks. And I'm sure there's some sort of interesting cultural lesson embedded in the fact that Japan has resisted the fork while the West has resisted the Japanese-style toilet. I don't think we have time to unpack that whole cultural lesson in this episode. I will, however, mention yet another eating utensil, one that we might argue is the best technology of all. Tom, there is an obvious lacuna in this discussion, which is the spork which combines the functionality, the bowl of the spoon, with the tines of the fork. Why did this not sweep Europe in these times and and become the dominant utensil? Well, there have been many attempts to introduce the spork, and I think the spork is probably um, the best way for us to understand how people used to think about forks. So if you went to someone's house for a dinner party and they put sporks on the table, you would think they were out of their minds. And that's how people thought Thomas Coriat was uh, back in 1608 when he started trying to get people to use forks. So there isn't a, a good reason for it. And there isn't an explanation. It's just fashion. Um, why would you use it? That's crazy. Uh, and so on. So maybe that will change. And maybe, you know, in, in the future, 200 years from now, people on Mars will be going, huh, back in the days when Earth was the most important planet. They were crazy. They wouldn't use the obvious innovation of the spork. Who knows? You've convinced me. I am completely going to set sporks on my table at my next dinner party, and you are invited, Tom. Yeah, we can, we can start a new fashion here. We can spread the spork. Of course, anything is possible as fashions change. Margaret Visser, the fork expert, has a vision of the future that you might not expect. I think we might even go back to eating with our hands. I mean, that could easily happen. It could happen. I don't say it will, but I think it probably could. Yeah. I'm Seth Stevenson. And I'm Tom Standage. The Secret History of the Future is a joint production of Slate and The Economist. It's produced by Bart Warshaw and Kate Holland. Editorial help was provided by Gabriel Roth. The senior producer for Slate Podcasts is TJ Raphael. The executive producers are Steve Lichtai for Slate Podcasts and Anne McElvoy for The Economist. Next week on The Secret History of the Future. AVs, the notion is that we're going to find ways to share vehicles and share rides and everything's going to work beautifully and be more efficient than it ever has been in the past. However, it doesn't have to work that way. And there is at least as much a chance that it won't is that it will. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on The Secret History of the Future.